This podcast is sponsored by the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, thanks to member support. Stay tuned to learn more at the conclusion of today's program. This is Theology on the Go, a brief interview about an eternal truth. What we're saying in the hypostatic union is that the Son in his infinite fullness of being and as an infinite person supplies the who-ness to a finite nature. Hello and welcome to Theology on the Go. I am Jonathan Master and I am joined with my co-host, Dr. James Dolezal. James, how are you today? I'm well, Jonathan. Pleasure to be here. We have the chance today to have another discussion between the two of us. We sometimes uh, mix these in with other guests uh, that we are able to host. And today we want to discuss something that probably sounds very daunting at first, and in a way it is. It's a great mystery of the faith, but we wanted to discuss together the hypostatic union, uh, the, 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 the dual natures of Jesus Christ, human and divine. And of course, the, the great statement, the, the classic statement on this was, uh, was is, is called the Chalcedonian formula, and it discusses some of the pitfalls that we need to avoid when discussing the human and divine natures of Jesus Christ, and also some of the things that we need to affirm. So let me begin with a definition, or James, I'm going to ask you to begin with a definition. What do we mean when we talk about the hypostatic union? Uh, Maybe the term is intimidating, hypostatic. uh, It's not hypothesis, uh, a term that sounds similar, but has nothing to do with what we're talking about. Hypostatic, it means the personal union or the union in the one person of the two natures, uh, that Christ is true God and true man, but he's not uh, a divine person and a human person. He is singularly and only a divine person. So that in the person of the son, there is uh, a union of the two natures. Uh, and that's really what we're after. We're talking about, it's really the emphasis of the unity of Christ. So we're not talking about a, a pair of persons. We're talking about one person, the eternal son, begotten of the father, who is true God and who through the assumption of our nature became true man. So one person, two natures. And I should say that even that very simple formulation, which raises all kinds of questions, is a formulation that I think many Christians might not know. I think it's our, our friend Carl Truman has told us this story uh, on several occasions that he'll ask his theology students, how many natures does Christ possess? And, you know, generally speaking, they, they don't know. I mean, they'll say one or, or they, they really don't know to, to, to think in those terms. So even just that basic way of describing it is probably unfamiliar territory. Um, but then once you get past it, you, you, there are all kinds of questions like, how does that work without any kind of mixing together? We're not talking about 50% one and 50% the other, right? Yeah. And I, I even hesitate with saying, you know, his God part and his man part. Um, although I, I will admit to having used that language before, uh, you know, in catechizing my children and, my, you know, I, I know it's wrong. My wife tells me to be patient. We'll get, we'll get past the, the parthood stuff, you know, at a, at a later point. So, but that's a no parts it, allowed in your, in your, you know, yeah, I'm the, I'm the, I'm the anti, 
anti-parthood uh, guy. I can imagine. Uh, and so I think that's what we want to be careful of. We don't want to say that he's a mixture of percentages, percent in even even using the language of 100% man, 100% God. I think it's uh, I think it's probably safer if we use the language of true God and true man and don't bring quantities uh, into the question um, at all, but just kind of leave that aside. Although I think most people mean by that, that he really is God and he really is man. And they, they're trying to affirm both, but I think leaving percentages out will help. The real question that precipitated early church debates on this was the question of how can Jesus of Nazareth um, be true God or how could, or putting it in a different way, how could he who is true God be this man, Jesus, um, who's, you know, sitting by the Sea of Galilee and eating fish and having conversations and taking naps in the back of boats and all that kind of thing. How can we, how are we supposed to negotiate the reality of his divinity and the reality of his humanity? Uh, and the Chalcedonian formula from 451, which you mentioned, was really a resolution to several um, unorthodox and problematic proposals uh, to that uh, before uh, that had gone before. Um, and this is and this and the hypostatic union was really the church's resolution, not not dissolving the mystery. In fact, in a certain sense, enshrining the mystery, enshrining the the strangeness of this union um, as that which must be believed, and avoiding sort of over easy explanations. Um, and so, I think we should talk about some of those because I think in the one you just mentioned, uh, maybe there's one nature is probably the one that I think is more prevalent today. But uh, one explanation was what was called the homo assumptus view, which is just that um, God, the son um, or God himself adopted a man, homo, um, uh, Jesus of Nazareth, son of Mary, uh, adopted a man for some particular messianic purpose. The concern with this, though, was that, you know, there's a difference between a man and a human nature. I can talk about Jonathan's humanity, and then I can talk about Jonathan the man. Um, and if we say that he adopted Jesus the man, who is the person that is Jesus of Nazareth? The homo assumptus theory seemed to suggest that there was a created personhood there. And the church's consensus was that we need to deny that Jesus is a created person his humanity is a created nature. What he is as man is created, but who he is is not created. Um, and that distinction led the church to reject the kind of adoptionism of, I'm just going to adopt this man, Jesus, for a special purpose. Um, who he is, is none other than the eternal son of God, even though as man, what he is, is true man, rational soul and body derived from Mary. Now, when you get to the Chalcedonian formula, in addition to denying a number of things uh, and affirming that we're talking about uh, a person who is truly God and truly man, when you get to the heart of the Chalcedonian formula and, and, and it describes for us the nature of the hypostatic union, it says it, it resorts to this negative language, what it's not. It's without confusion, without change, without division, without separation. And that's a very significant uh, feature of the statement in my mind, because when it comes to the mystery, uh, it's, it's important to say what it isn't to put in these guardrails. But there's a certain sense in which they can't quite say how it does work 
uh, it's two natures, one person. Uh, right. But but how is that union uh, sort of put together, as it were? Let me say something to the first, third, and fourth of those um, unconfusedly uh, or without confusion is the first one. So that what we're talking about in the hypostatic union is not a a blending of the two natures. Um, this is this is not a mixing in of divinity with humanity. So we're not, um, if I can put it this way, in a strict and metaphysical sense, we're not divinizing the humanity. We're not humanizing the divinity. The problem with mixing the natures is that you end up with a third thing. Um, so that it's not really, it's not really um, true man or uh, true God, but really it's a kind of third, I don't even know how to say it, um, really fast, God-man thing or something yeah, like that. Yeah, but I actually think when you get to the, the, what we were talking about earlier about people thinking that, that he's one nature, one person, that's probably what they're thinking. They're thinking there's this nature that, that's a one-off, that's a kind of blend of human and divine, and that's what Jesus is. I wonder if, I wonder if there are um, at least remnants of that um, sometimes in the way that we talk about Christ's operations as man. And when it's like, when we read texts, I don't know, you and I haven't really discussed these in depth. So maybe we don't even see these the same way, but sometimes when, it, when we read a text, like um, there are Jesus's religious gainsayers, there critiquing him and whispering over in a corner. And then it says that Jesus, um, you know, knew what was in their hearts or something like that. And then we automatically say, well, of course he did. He was God. Um, or if Jesus resists the temptation of the devil, we say, well, of course he did. He's God. And I, I wonder if at the operational level, there isn't a, a sort of maybe a mild unwitting mixing of the nature so that we attribute certain things he does in his human nature to his divine nature. And we almost begin to what the the creed calls confuse, we begin to kind of mix some divinity in to really fortify that humanity for the particularly difficult tasks that he has. Um, yeah, it's like a superpower. And I don't think it's, I don't think like that's that. explicitly intending mono, monophysitism, the one nature doctrine as opposed to two natures, but I think that it kind of implicitly suggests it and you need to be very, we need to be very careful not to imply that. Um, the third one, I'm going to hold on to the unchangeably for a second. The third one was um, indivisibly and inseparably. Um, really, that's with concern to the divine person. What we're saying is um, that there's not one being over here that is the man and another being over here that is God. And then some, they're in some kind of um, corporate collaborative unity of camaraderie um, you know, in order to achieve salvation. They aren't separable. Sometimes I get to ask this question by students. Um, is Jesus still human now, now that he's in heaven? Does he retain his true humanity or is his humanity just a kind of um, 33-year-old vehicle that he drives until redemption is accomplished and then he ascends to the right hand of the Father and he dispenses with his humanity? We, what we're saying is that from the moment of incarnation, from the assumption of the human nature on, there is an inseparable and indivisible, though distinct, relationship of these two natures so that Christ is even now in heaven, true God and true man. So hypostatic union is a permanent reality, not just a historical temporal reality for Christ's earthly career. But the distinction is important, not just because the Bible tells us that both things are true, that he's truly God and truly man, but it's also important because when we get into discussions of the suffering of Jesus Christ, we, we 
those distinctions become helpful for us in rightly stating what's happening there. This was a big question in the early church went under the name Theopaschitism, which is the idea of can God suffer? And the universal witness of the early church was God cannot suffer. He's without passions. And yet we Christians celebrate Passion Week and we remember the passions of the Christ. And in fact, we've invested our hope of eternal salvation um, in his suffering unto death. Um, And the hypostatic union enables us to say both things without putting our tongue in our cheek. Um, It enables us to say as true God, um, in so much as he is God, he does not undergo passion. Um, In so much as he is true man, he feels acutely um, that suffering even to the point of death. And by not mixing the natures, by keeping them unmixed, I can say um, with regard to the question of who died on the cross, I can say the eternal son of God died on the cross in terms of who he is, the word of God incarnate. Um, If you ask in virtue of what uh, he died, I will say not in virtue of his divine nature, but only in virtue of that passable mortal nature that he derived from the virgin as second Adam. Um, So the hypostatic union enables us to negotiate uh, theologically some of that biblical language in a way that does justice to the language and doesn't compromise other aspects of the scripture's witness about the divine nature. So division and distinction, we're separating those out. We're saying he he is without division in, in his person, and yet it is appropriate and biblical and theologically sound and necessary really to make a distinction between his divine nature and his human nature. And I'll just give you a bumper sticker saying for this, um, every separation requires a distinction, but not every distinction requires a separation. Uh, And if we can hold on to, and I think we tend to use those interchangeably distinct and separate. And so you'll even find this in some theologians where they'll talk about, well, there's, they're separate, but what they really, they don't mean separate. They mean distinct because of the hypostatic union. We are emphatically denying the separability or separateness of the two natures, but that does not in any way soften the absolute distinction between divinity and humanity in the person of the son. The person is the locus of the union. That the term I ignored that you mentioned, but we should talk about. Is yeah, the, I, want, I was about to come back right, to this hit, because I, it. I wanted to hear why you are putting this last and why you wanted okay. to deal with it not in the in the order in which uh, it appears in the in the Chalcedonian formula. And then I and then I have a follow up question, but that's the one I want to hear the answer to now. Okay, it's the question of unchangeably. John 1.14 says the word who up in John 1.1-3 is identified as God and the creator of all things. And then John 1.14 says the word became flesh. And I think the natural tendency, um, and I'm, I'm, I don't agree with it, but I, I understand why it's there, is to think that because it says the word became flesh, that that means that there must have been some change in the word. The word must have undergone some sort of change. Or at least added something. I mean, this and this is actually what my follow-up question was going to be. Or, or is the word adding something to? Yeah, itself? I think this is where we need to be very careful because the problem. Let's just talk about uh, talk about how this is the case. This is not so much an explanation of how. I'm not dissolving mysteries here. I'm just trying to protect them from over easy explanations. Um, the word became. First of all, I want to say, like I said about separation and distinction. Let me say this about becoming. Um, 
every change is a becoming, but not every becoming is a change. And again, I'm not playing with words or trying to be cute. There are times in the Old Testament, for instance, where Isaiah will say about Yahweh, and so he became their savior. And by that, the text does not mean that Yahweh himself underwent a change. He's immutable. He's unchangeable. He is infinite in being. That which is infinite in being can't change. So how can we say God became their savior? The way we say that is in the case of like the redemption of Israel is because God drew something in creation, namely a people into a new relationship with himself um, such that the consequent for them was salvation. And what I want to say is sort of analogous to that. The person of the word draws into a relationship to himself, something in creation, namely a rational soul and body in the virgin's womb, a human nature. And in this drawing of the human nature into relationship with the person of the son, the person of the son supplies the personhood of that human nature so that, so that Jesus is a human, but he's not a human person. He's a divine person who is human so that his divine personhood supplies the who-ness, if I can say it, that's not a word, but I'll make it up. The, the who-ness, the hypostasis to the nature. So if I can just put it like this to be a little bit abstruse for a moment, um, I can talk about a rational soul and body as that which constitutes a human but I can't talk about a rational soul and body existing independent of someone who has that soul and body. So I can talk about, um, if I could, you know, if I go home to my wife and I say, Hey, um, I did an interview today for theology on the go with a rational soul and body. And she'll be, and you know, she'll say, what are you talking about? You mean Jonathan, right? You know, and, and I'd have to say, yes, Jonathan, what if I said, no, it wasn't the rational soul and body of, any one, any who, it didn't have a who-ness, it was just rational soul and body. What I'm wanting to say is rational soul and body, human natures never, never subsist as actual things concretely apart from something supplying who-ness or personhood. What we're saying in the hypostatic union is that the son in his infinite fullness of being and as an infinite person supplies the who-ness to a finite nature. So that who this child in the manger is, is the eternal son of God. What you see in the manger is a human nature derived from the virgin. I thought I might read one of my favorites on this, uh, Louis Burkhoff, who I think says it really well, as he always does, on, on this sort of personal union. And then I will answer your question about addition in, in brief. Well, says, in one sense, I, I, I'll say this to some degree, I think you have answered it. I mean, I think that's, that's the, yeah, that's because, the answer right there. Because, well, let me say like this to back to Israel, being savior to Israel doesn't add something to Yahweh, but it does add a relationship to Yahweh, to the people. Do you get what I'm after? And yeah, so that because yeah, of that new relationship right. that the people have received from Yahweh, we can say of Yahweh, so he became their savior, but that becoming does not mean he, he mutated into saviorhood or changed into saviorhood or even added saviorhood to himself as divine right. being, if for no other reason, infinite beings can't add to themselves. But I'll come to your question. This is what Burkhoff says. There's one person in the mediator and that person is the unchangeable, and he emphasizes that, the unchangeable son of God. We need to be very careful of saying, I mean, I've, I've read one theologian who says, we have to admit that when it says the word became flesh, there had to be some kind of change that the word underwent in that statement. What I love about Burkhoff is he just emphatically refuses to go that route. 
He says, in the incarnation, he did not change into a human person, nor did he adopt a human person. He simply assumed a human nature, which did not develop into any independent personality. That is to say, Jesus of Nazareth is not a human person. He's a human being who is a divine person. Back to Berghoff. But he be, this, this is the statement. But the nature became personal in the person of the Son of God. So what supplies the needed personhood, the needed who-ness, the needed someone-ness to that human nature of Jesus is in fact none other than a divine person. He's the only human who is not a human who. If I, can say, I don't know if I've ever said it like that, but I would want to say it like that. With regard to the addition, I think we should go back to the language of assumption. The older theologians do not say, they, first of all, they deny that he subtracted or lost or deprived himself of any of his essence or operations in the incarnation. He didn't cease being or doing all that he is as God, but they were also emphatic that he did not add a human nature to himself. And I think there's a, there's a proclivity nowadays to say that in the incarnation, the son didn't, didn't become incarnate by subtracting from himself. He became incarnate by adding to himself. I think we need to be very careful of that kind of language because historically that is not how theologians spoke and arguably that's not how the Bible speaks. When the Bible says that he took unto himself or assumed as the language we use human nature, that taking unto does not augment or add anything to the one who takes it. Just like he took Israel into a salvific, that's not a hypostatic union, but took, took Israel into a saving relationship with himself or drew them into a saving relationship with himself. He can draw them to himself without adding to himself in that. And I'm wanting to say that's in the incarnation, that's what we're talking about. It's neither subtraction nor addition, it's assumption. And what we particularly mean is that he draws that human nature into a unity of his person, his hypostasis, and thereby supplies personhood via his divine personhood to that human nature. We'll have to end on that note. As our listeners can no doubt tell, terminology is highly significant in keeping us from error on this topic and then really explaining it in the way that the Bible uh, explains it. But at the end of the day, we are also dealing with a great mystery here. So we, we kind of bump up against sometimes even the limits of our language. James, always good to talk with you. Let's do it again soon. Absolutely. Well, thank you for listening to Theology on the Go. If you know someone who might benefit from either this episode or other episodes, please pass along the program. We love getting new listeners. We love hearing from you. If you're able to rate and review our podcast, that helps us as well. It helps spread the word. And if you're able to donate, you can do that at AllianceNet.org. There's a donate button or PlaceForTruth.org. Also, there's a donate button there. And uh, please feel free if you, if you have suggestions to send them to us because we uh, value your input and want to serve you as well as we can. Thank you for listening to Theology on the Go today, a brief interview about an eternal truth. This podcast is a service of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Thanks to member support, your generosity and prayers enable the Alliance to provide more ways for Christians to read and hear the truth of God's Word. Alliance podcasts are reaching a new generation. Alliance websites like Reformation 21 and Place for Truth showcase the writings of today's leading thinkers. Reformed events are historic gatherings of respected Bible teachers reflecting together on a common theme. And Reformed Resources brings it all 
all together, offering trustworthy audio, video, books, and other materials to strengthen and grow your faith. Connect with it all at AllianceNet.org. Your financial support is urgently needed to keep this podcast online. So as you visit our website, select the green donate button and share your most generous gift. Join us in this powerful, practical ministry. We're the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, proclaiming biblical doctrine to foster a reformed awakening in today's church.